Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 15, please, this evening. John chapter 15. While you're turning there, I want to say two more things about uh, what we were talking about. The first is uh, that I just encourage you maybe to think um, that you're the Comptons or the Thompsons, right? You live in a world that's radically different than your own, surrounded by the other belief system and how you would think in terms of what you're called to do there, right? You, you would know every conversation you have has real significance for your purpose to bear witness to Christ in the midst of a world shrouded under darkness, right? So what I'm really trying to do is encourage us to adopt a missionary mindset. We shouldn't assume that we are in a, in a genuinely Christian environment, right? Even as, I, and that was my point of the allusions to uh, the kinds of things that have been passed off under Christianity before, which you and I would go, I want no part of. I don't want to identify what I believe with that, the systemic elimination of people. Right, because especially as Baptists, uh, we would we would emphasize soul liberty. You don't convert people at the edge of the sword. Right, it's the Word of God that will turn the heart. So, so we sh- we should think that way. We should we should be operating with a heart that is uh, is is operating as a missionary. We're trying to be a witness for Christ in the midst of a worldview and a collision of worldviews that are not framed by Scripture. And so, so we, want to, we want to do that. Uh, we, I started way, way back early in the year, a series called Benchmarks of Discipleship. Uh, we've made pretty steady progress, uh, but occasionally have some breaks in there uh, because of, of things that are happening. And so we were just on one break. Just real rapid review, trusting, belonging, growing, serving, sharing, right? If, if, if they're genuinely a disciple of Christ, they have come to trust in him. That is, they have, they have confessed Christ as their Lord, have identified with uh, him through baptism. They, they recognize that they would then belong to the people of God, and they should be growing in Christ and using the resources given to us for growth and, and accepting responsibility for that. They, they would have a life that begins to flow outward because of the love of Christ, loving one another as Christ loved us into service for one another and would be transformed from a person whose primary orientation is toward what they can get for themselves to actually how they would live sharing what they have for others. And that was the last thing we looked at. And we looked at the, the, the three key words were generosity, hospitality, and testimony. We're sharing what God's given to us uh, generously in the provision for his work and for those in need. Uh, we're opening up our homes for the sake of Christ, and we're sharing our testimony about what God has done for us in Christ so that we're bearing witness to that. You may have noticed as we've moved along, 
uh, that, that usually there's a hook between each of them, right? They sort of flow into each other. So actually that sharing testimony moves into the next one that, that we're uh, going to look at under the word multiplying. That, that actually, uh, that we're not just to be a disciple. We're actually supposed to be in the task of multiplying disciples. That we're not just to be a servant. We're actually to be encouraging and multiplying servants. We're supposed to be seeing the work expand as God does it. And so I want to, Lord willing, take three Sunday nights and focus on that. And the first is on the issue of multiplying disciples. Christian, The Christian life flows upward and outward and was never meant to become ingrown or insulated from the lost. The church is to be distinct from the world while also being deployed into the world. Right, so so that's a persistent problem for believers, and uh, you know it's. I think it's uh, it's clearly identified in the scriptures. Paul warned the church at Corinth that he hadn't told them to separate from the unbelievers of this world, or else they would have had to go out of the world. Right, but if anyone was a so-called brother, then and they lived like a lost person, then they were to withdraw from them. Right, so if if you see in the Gospels the religious people of that day uh, criticizing Jesus because he received sinners and ate with them, and you see the church at Corinth struggling with this idea about whether or not they should have any kind of interaction with lost people, then there must be something that we have inherently to fight against. Right? We know we are not to love the world and the things into the world. So, so there's, there's an automatic sort of withdrawal from the world. But what we have to guard against is the tendency to define the world as the people of the world rather than as the system and practices of the world. Right? We're never told to separate from worldlings. Doesn't say don't love lost people, right? When it says don't love the world, it does. It is mean don't love lost people, because we actually have a responsibility to move toward those who don't know Christ for the sake of the gospel. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, I don't know how it hit your ears when I said the names of people that are on my evangelistic prayer list, right? Guys that I would, they would actually probably call me a friend and I would say we're friends, certainly friends, because my, my concept of friend is a little tighter than just like I happen to know somebody, right? But clearly would be, uh, I'll just take the name Ali, has asked me, on at least three occasions to pray for him, right? So, so he looks at me as somebody that he can confide in and that we can talk with. And, and he's described by his fellow Muslims as a hajj. If you're, if you're familiar with means he's done the pilgrimage to Mecca, right? So he's not, 
He's not a nominal Muslim. He's actually gone on the pilgrimage to Mecca. Yet he looks at this Baptist pastor and asks him to pray. Right? And, and we're not having any kind of joint worship service. We're not compromising the gospel at all. I've stood right next to the man and prayed for him in Jesus' name. Right? Which is what my obligation is. So, so the point is we cannot hide into some kind of bubble because that would be contrary to what Jesus has called us to do. And I want us to look at a text that I think should, should, should shape the way we think about our commitment to Christ and his purposes. Look at verse 16 of chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever I ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So here's, I'm just gonna try and condense the context. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Then look at verse 17. This I command you that you love one another. So, so this paragraph all fits together and it fits together under uh, sort of the, the, the weight of what Jesus is doing here is he's told them to keep his commandments and now he narrows it down to one commandment to love one another. And that forms sort of the bracket in verse 12 and verse 17. And these verses are actually showing us how Christ loved us. Because look at the end of verse 12, just as I have loved you, all right? And, and you can go back to whenever I preach through the Gospel of John if you want to hear the whole exposition of it. But here's, here's I'm just going to bullet point the, the basic idea of it. There are three characteristics of Christ's love in these verses. The first is that it is sacrificial, verses 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So, so Jesus is saying, listen, I am I'm going to love you in a sacrificial way to lay down my life for you. And, and, the, and verse 14 is really the characteristic of followers of Christ. They're the people who actually keep the commandments of Christ. That's what they look like, right? They're, if you love me, he says in chapter 14, keep my commandments. So the evidence of our love for Christ and our relationship to Christ is obedience to his commandments. He laid down his life for us. That's a sacrificial kind of love. Then verse 15, it's a relational kind of love. He says, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Jesus draws them into fellowship, right? He's revealing to them the, the words of the father, as he says in chapter 17. So he's bringing them into fellowship with him. It's a relational kind of love. Then verse 16 is it's a mission-minded or missional kind of love. He deploys us into his service. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So here's, here's, uh, here's like the principle. I just want to try and drive home and then show you why I think that from this text, right? Every believer, every believer should reproduce 
or multiply or bear fruit that remains. That's Jesus is saying about his disciples, right? I chose you that you would go and bear fruit. And here's why I think we need to think, and I say it, I'm, try, I'm trying to walk carefully through it, uh, because here's, here's the, uh, a part of the problem I, I was addressing in the introduction. We tend to think, the longer we know Christ, the more likely it is we can be isolated from those who don't know Christ. Right? That, you know, you know the they say, right? But they say, it takes about 18 months for a new believer to have lost all of his unbelieving friends. Right? About 18 months of being incorporated into the fellowship of God's people and becoming zeroed in there and the people they knew that were lost, they no longer have any connection with. All right? I don't know how they did that stat. So I'm just telling you up front, it's like 75% of stats are made up on the spot, right? I don't know how you do this one. But I think it rings true for most of us, right? That we become enculturated in a believing community. And instead of that actually helping equip us to be redemptively active in the process of witnessing for Christ, we start to move away from any kind of relationship. Now, obviously, we know we have people who live next to us. We work with people. We have family members that don't know Christ. I'm not saying all of a sudden you somehow go into a bubble and you never see lost people. But in terms of, of seeking to reach them, say, like Jesus was doing, when he went to Matthew's house so Matthew could throw a party for all his unbelieving friends to meet Jesus. Right? That, that we tend to pull away. We tend to, to recede from that because if we're honest, it can be uncomfortable for us. Right? There can be lots of ways in which it's uncomfortable because lost people live like lost people. And, and sometimes we don't know how to handle that, right? I mean, it, I've, I've joked around before. I mean, it's, you know, I play golf with a lot of lost people because it's just, the, you know, that's how I know a lot of these guys. And it's like happened again just like a week or so. We were having a, a competition and, you know, one guy's just like going off constantly. The other guy goes, so Dave, what do you do? And I go, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, you know, sorry. And he tells his friend, and his friend didn't flinch. Like, he's like, I'm not going to change my, my approach. So I had to spend, you know, 14 holes with this guy and, and make certain what I always do is, like, when they start to do their little confessional with me, I'm always saying, you know, it's, it's really not me. It actually came up again at the table. Like, did you give him confession? I said, you got the wrong, you got the wrong branch. Right? I don't forgive sins. I point to the one who can. Right? But, but it's, it's not fun. I mean, you know, I grew up playing hockey, so it's not like I'm hearing anything I haven't ever heard before. 
But the reality of it is it's, it, it, it's not fun to be in the presence of people who are living in a way that you believe is wrong. But what did Jesus commission us to do? Right? He commissioned us to make disciples. He commissioned us to go follow him in seeking to seek and save the lost. Right? So it's, it's, it's easy for us to start to recede. I think another element of it that we have to wrestle with, and, and, and again, hear me carefully on this, all right, is that we have a tendency to still be shaped by methods of ministry that worked when we were a church-going culture, right? I mean, think of the history of our church, right? We're uh, 1949, First Baptist of Melvindale starts to outgrow its building, so it merges with Allen Park Baptist, which didn't have a building but had property across the street where the seminary is. Didn't have a pastor. The two merged. They built a building added to it three times, and then a cross over here within 13 years. What we don't often think about is this was a farm. This was the Quant farm. All of this was farmland. And then all of a sudden they start dropping houses in 15 feet from each other. And all kinds of people are moving in, and in the 1950s, you moved into a community and you looked for what? A church. So you had programs and people would come to the programs. Everyone would come to you because that was the culture. And, and here's the, the blessing, is it? that Like all kinds of people, like my family came to Christ. Right? But the downside of it is it shaped generations of believers to think that the church does evangelism. Not Christians do evangelism. Right? That the way to get the gospel is to have programs and events, not actually for believers to talk about Christ to their unbelieving friends and family members. It was, let's gather them in for the professional Soul winner, right? Let's herd up the lost people and have someone who's a skilled preacher preach to them. And, and actually, it's sort of silenced, in many cases, the voices of God's people. So that instead of the gospel radiating out through a thousand pathways... It started to be, well, let's put all our eggs in the basket of, of events or programs. And, and my job to win people to Christ is get people there, not actually talk to them about Christ. And then all of a sudden you have a culture that shifts and the average unbeliever doesn't move into a community and start going, hey, I'm going to go look for a church. Now, sometimes it does. They have a baby. They start to think, boy, what are we going to do? Or something's going on. They're looking for it. But, but for the most part, that's not the way the gospel is going to spread in our day, just as it didn't spread in the first century like that. They weren't pulling up to the, the church, the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, send their kids running into a children's program. 
right? They weren't, they weren't, they weren't like having all these gigantic events to get everybody to come. They were going, talking to people that they knew about Jesus, telling them the good news, and God was using it to convert them. And, and so what I'm simply suggesting is that we've got to recover the incredible privilege it is that Jesus has given to every disciple of his to be an evangelist for Christ, to go and bear fruit that remains, that it's something for all of us, not just a few of us, that God wants us to be engaged in this. So look, look at the text, and I want to try and just uh, use it to press in on our hearts about it, right? He says, certainly in terms of the call, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. So this verse stresses the initiative taken by Jesus with regard to his disciples. He chose them, he appointed them, his love secured and sent them into his mission. Now, some would go, well, that's just the 11, all right? And, and I confess that that's possible. What I would say is then they should probably consistently restrict the rest of the chapter to just the 11 too. That it's just the 11 that are supposed to abide in the vine. It's just the 11 that can ask what, what they desire and God will hear it so they bear much fruit and so show to be his disciples. But I don't think most people want to do that. They just want to take this one line and say, no, that's just the 11. That's not us. Okay, but, but what we'd see all the way through the farewell discourse, I think, is a continuity between Christ's instruction for the disciples that are right there and his disciples until he comes back. Right, like for instance, in John 17, he says, I'm not praying for these alone, but for those who will believe on me through their word. You're, you're, Jesus is going, right, this is gonna not just be these guys that I'm talking about, but also the people who come to believe in me through their word, which is what you and I are. We're the outgrowth of the faithful proclamation of the gospel from generation to generation. Right? The same kind of thing someone might try and apply to the Great Commission, and they do. Right? The Great Commission is just for the disciples. But what about that part at the end? It says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus was saying something in Matthew that was going to hold true until the end of the age. None of those 11 have lived that long. So that must be for us, right? What Jesus is saying here is for his followers, that he's the one who gathered us to himself. And when he did, he also gave us a mission that we are to carry out for him. The way I've said it before is that receiving the gospel makes you responsible for spreading the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that the Thessalonians were a model church 
right? Because they became imitators of the Lord and of us, having received the word amidst much affliction, right? And then he says, and you became an example to all the believers for the word of the Lord sounded out from you into Macedonia. What specifically were they an example to all the believers about? That the word had sounded out from them. That they actually had received the gospel and then accepted responsibility for the spread of the gospel. And that's not just something unique to Thessalonica because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you. So the same thing that happened at Thessalonica, Paul wants him them to pray will happen where he is now. That's the pattern that's supposed to take place, that, that those who receive the gospel become responsible for spreading the gospel. He's, he's saved us for that purpose. Right? It's part of the good work that he redeemed us for and prepared beforehand that we would walk in. We're to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ until Christ comes back. Look at in verse 16, because here's the purpose of this choosing and appointing, that you would go and bear fruit. There's fruit-bearing mission. The fruit in here, obviously, um, there's Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So there's the work of the Spirit in a believer's life. But here's, I think, the key to understanding this one. There's no need to go anywhere to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Right? So he's chosen and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So this isn't the fruit of Christian character. This is actually the fruit of the mission. It's fruit that remains, that they would go and they would see a harvest that would come from their announcement of the gospel. It's, I think, picking up on the imagery that's in chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the, the Samaritan woman, and then he says about what's happening as the Samaritans are coming out, and, and Jesus says, you know, don't, don't say... There are four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So John has already courted Jesus using fruit in terms of harvest and eternal life. So when Jesus says, I chose you, appointed you to go and bear fruit that remains. It's not about our character that he's talking about. He's talking about the mission of Jesus Christ, that believers were chosen and called by God to engage in this task of fruit bearing. And that's something that I think uh, they've seen uh, of Jesus being glorified through their witness because that's what he's been telling them. In, in chapter 15, at the end of it, notice verses 26 and 27. 
When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. So they're gonna bear testimony about Christ. In chapter 16, the Spirit's work is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the Spirit of truth who does that. In chapter 17 and verse 20, 18, they're sent, just as the Son sent was sent by the Father. They're going to tell people about Jesus, and people will believe on him through their word. And so you and I are, are a part of that chain. The fruit that remains, I think, then is disciples who abide in Christ. Because look at chapter six, 15 and verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in the vine. So it's fruit that remains because it's fruit that abides in the vine. I think this is the promise of multiplication. The, the, the mission of Jesus is going to carry out its purpose. In chapter 10, verse 16, he says, other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them must I also bring, and they will hear my voice. So Jesus is going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to call out his sheep. They will hear his voice. In 1720, Jesus is praying for people who have not yet believed. I'm not just praying for them, but those who will believe on me through their word. So Jesus was certain that there would be people who believed in him through the word of the apostles. It wasn't a hope so. I mean, Jesus didn't die on the cross, go back to heaven and go, I sure hope somebody believes in me. He said, they will hear my voice. I'm praying for the ones who will believe in me. Because 1516 says, you were chosen to go and bring forth fruit that remains, right? The, the mission of the disciples would be fruitful. And that's a mission that you and I have been entrusted with. Go back to 1516 if you turned away from there and look at the second. And this isn't, the parallelism isn't quite as clear in, uh, in, New American Standard as it probably should be, but the key word that you can see there is the word that appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that 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 is in italics because it's not really there. Here comes the second one. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So the two that's, this is probably too wonky for you, but the two that's are the same Greek word. Right, So you could actually translate it, he appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Right, So both of those are joined to the choosing and appointing. Jesus chooses his disciples and commissions them so that they will go and bear fruit and that fruit will remain and so that whatever they ask of the Father, he may give them, All right? So, so here's what I would suggest is we've got a, and I'm just going to say it this way, right? A fruit-producing mission, right? A fruit-producing mission and also fruit-producing access to the Father. 
Those two things are joined together. So, so the praying that we are giving the privilege of is tied to the fruit-bearing mission that we've been entrusted with. And, and we can pray for a lot of things, and we ought to pray for a lot of things. The thing that we probably should pray most for is the spread of God's word and the multiplication of disciples. Because that's what Jesus has commissioned us to do. Right? How much value can you place on a soul? And that's why we should pray so much. There's lots of things that really matter, and I'm not trying to minimize them at all. Lots of our cares, daily cares and, and burdens and growth, all of that. I'm not minimizing them at all. I'm just saying, do we have an appreciation for the weightiness of the issues involved in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right? How important it is that someone come to hear about Jesus. Because if they don't hear, they can never believe. Right? That's what Romans 10 talks about. And that's why Jesus, when he looks out at the fields, he says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Right? He sees the seriousness of the lost condition and his first response is pray, pray. Right? When Paul calls people to pray for him, it is constantly connected to his responsibility to speak the word of God clearly and boldly as it deserves to be spoken. That God would open up doors for the word. And, and Paul is operating from the mindset of Jesus here. Because Jesus is saying, Hey, I chose you. I appointed you that you would bear fruit, that you would ask the Father and he would give. And so, so those two things fit together under every believer's responsibility. And I think you and I have got to be reminded of that. I know I need to be reminded of it constantly. Right? That, that there are... There are enormous, enormous issues at stake in the advance of the gospel that take priority over almost everything else in terms of the eternal ramifications of it. Right? People will live somewhere forever. It will be either under the judgment of God or it will be in the fellowship of their Redeemer. And the difference, the difference at very least is tied to whether or not they have ever heard. And that means all around you, like around me, I might be the only person that they know that knows Jesus. I mean, think about that. They might not know anybody else that truly understands the gospel. You could be the only person within their circle that could tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And God placed you there 
specifically for that purpose. To tell them that there is a Redeemer. To let them know that God loves the world and gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have life. Right? That's the mission that Jesus entrusted to us and every one of us are a part of that. So I'm just going to bring it down to this challenge, right? I, I, I hope, I mentioned that a couple times and I've taught on it, so I'm, 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 hopefully it's a familiarity. But if you don't have one of these, we'd be glad to get you one, right? Years ago, I, I, I came up with a little circle prayer list, right, of categories of people close to me and around me that I don't know, uh, I know they don't know Christ or maybe I'm not sure if they know Christ. And, and, and that's, that's my evangelistic prayer list. So, so here's the challenge for us. Cause, and this is, this is a text why I would do that. Because it's, it's in God's plan to do this in response to prayer. Right? And I'm praying that God will open up the door to talk with these people I've mentioned and others. That God will open up the door in the way, the only way that God can do it so that I can give them an, a reason for the hope that I have in Christ. That I can talk to them about my Savior. But it needs to be preceded by prayer because I can't open those doors effectively. I can't open the eyes of the blind. I don't have... I don't have the resources on my own to do it the way that Jesus wants it done. It must be done in the power of the Spirit. And I need help. So I need to pray for that. And here's what I say. If, if you're not in that boat, I don't know where you are. Everybody in this room that knows Jesus, has a responsibility, has been given the resources we need, but we must cry out to God for that. We must open our eyes to the harvest. And a part of it is actually believing that God can use you. Right? I mean, do you really believe that John 15, 16 means what it says. That God can use you to go and bear fruit that remains. That God has given you permission to ask and he will give it. Because quite honestly, sometimes the thing that keeps us from being faithful in this task is a lack of faith about the task. We don't really believe that this is true. I mean, we wouldn't deny it, but we'd say, well, that's not for me. I have no assurance from the word of God that my witness for Christ can bear fruit. And I think we do. I think we do. We can trust God for that. We can pursue that. We can pray for that. 
and we can step out in that. And I would like to just encourage us to think about the fact that if this is the mission of Jesus and we are part of that mission, we should long to see it being fulfilled. We should not be satisfied with a Christian life that doesn't experience the promise of God in bringing in the harvest. I don't think any church should be satisfied without seeing God work through the gospel to bring people to faith. We should long for it. And if we long for it, we will pray about it. We will put ourselves in the position where God can use us. Would you make that list? Would you pray? Would you be ready by God's grace? Because if we really want to be growing, maturing disciples, our witness for Christ is really, really important. Let's pray. Father, please help us uh, as a church, alongside of the tendency for individual believers to turn inward instead of outward. There's the pattern of churches becoming ingrown of having more concern about what the church does for us, how the church serves us, so that we lose sight of our redemptive purpose to make known the name of Christ to those with whom we have contact, to those for whom we should be praying. And so, Lord, would you move us outward in that way. May we each humbly before you be probing our own conscience with this truth. For whom have we been asking you to break through and bear fruit? Toward whom are we moving to share the good news? To whom have we spoken about Christ? Lord, please Help us to grow in this. Help me to grow in this. Pray that our church would see a, a time of harvest open up, that people would come to trust in Jesus. May you even use the present circumstances in our world and in our culture where there's so much unrest and confusion for us to humbly yet boldly Proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, in which we pray. Amen.